0: Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region.
1: Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian,
2: Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival
0: chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor-based writer and filmmaker.
1: Rochelle Riley ended a nearly 20-year career as an award-winning Detroit columnist in 2019 to become the City of Detroit's Director of Arts and Culture. She now guides the city's investment in the creative economy and creates opportunities for transformative innovation. She offers commentary on MSNBC and NPR and contributes to Essence and Ebony Magazines. She received the 2017 Ida B. Wells Award for the National Association of Black Journalists for her outstanding efforts to make newsrooms and news coverage more accurately reflect the diversity of the communities they serve. And the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Professional Journalists. She was a 2016 inductee into the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame and a 2019 inductee into the North Carolina Media and Journalism Hall of Fame. And she is a co-founder of Letters to Black Girls, an initiative to give letters of advice and encouragement from women across the country to girls across the country. The essayist, keynoter, and arts advocate is the author of That They Lived, African Americans Who Changed the World along with Christy Smith-Jones, 2021, and editor of The Burden, African-Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery, 2020, both published by Wayne State University Press. Rochelle lives near the banks of the Detroit River, but the world traveler never stays at home long. She has visited 28 countries and 33 states and counting.
3: Welcome Rochelle Riley. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here.
1: You describe yourself as a writer by trade, warrior by necessity. Could you tell us more about that?
3: Absolutely. Um, I, I thank you for mentioning that I left the newsroom to take a different job, but my job has always been as a writer from the time I was eight years old and very nosy. And there are two kinds of columnists, columnists who write to make you feel good and, you know, they tell great stories and, and they also sometimes write columns that don't have much meaning at all, except, you know, just for fun. And we used to, in the newsroom, call those naval land columns that could be done really quickly. Then there are those columns that are meant to um, spur change, to make people think, to decry foolishness, like, you know, our American education system not really educating our kids. Those are the types of things that I would do that I felt were necessary, were crusading columns, and I did more of those than anything else, so thus, warrior by necessity.
2: How do you carve out time for your writing nowadays?
3: It is very hard. You have to really love to write to have anything else in your life, whether it's family or a job or you know anything else fun. Like I used to play tennis a long time ago. I don't know what that is now, but I think- um, I could not live without writing because it literally is something that I love and I do it when it hits me. So there might be times that two o'clock in the morning, the characters in the novel that I'm trying to finish will start talking to me. and It's like, oh, wait a minute, that there's a solution to a problem I was trying to figure out and I'll stop what I'm doing and write. I don't have, and this is probably not a good idea, I don't have a set time that I write every day or every week. I'd probably be finished with my book if I did, but I do it when I know that I'm in the mood to write that and to feel like I can contribute to it. So it's not so much a carve out as when it interrupts my life or pushes its way into my life so that I wind up writing a little bit every week, but it's different every week.
0: That They Lived, African-Americans Who Changed the World, tell stories from the childhood years of African-American heroes such as Bessie Coleman, Muhammad Ali, Thurgood Marshall, and Rosa Parks. But it doesn't just tell stories. It also features beautiful black and white photographs of children dressed as these historical figures. Your grandson, Caleb, and another remarkable girl named Lola. How did you uh, write this project? How did this come about? And how did your collaboration with Christy Smith-Jones begin?
3: Well, I can tell you this one was really kind of simple. Um, I can just tell you that uh, back in 2017, and I'm a social media fiend. I mean, I'm on social media all day, all the time. I'm, I, I love Twitter, but I also, you know, visit Facebook every now and again. And we'll dive into Instagram because that's where a lot of my, you know, colleagues like to post all their pictures. But um, back then I was finishing the burden and literally had to... Um, not really have a lot in my life, but I would still go on social media. And in February of 2017 for Black History Month, every single day, there was a beautiful photograph of an iconic Black woman, except it was a little girl embodying that Black woman. And I thought, oh my God, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. And every day I looked at it, but again, I was on deadline. So I didn't do anything except enjoy it. Well, the burden came out and I was, you know, Sort of freer than I had been in a year. And in February of 2018, the pictures appeared again, some of them different, lots of different women. But this little girl named Lola, her mom posted one every single day of February. And I said, I have to talk to this woman. I have to find out the story behind this. So I went on Facebook and I found her and I called her. And first of all, she was stunned to hear from me. And she said, uh, you know, this is just not something I expected, although she did get a lot of publicity when she first started posting them. They were on the front page of the Seattle newspaper, and several people who were Lola portrayed got in touch with them. But she just kept doing it because it was her way of teaching her little girl Black history. Her her daughter came home from school talking about Martin Luther King. And she said she talked about her in a way, talked about him in a way that made her really think that she understood the importance of what he was doing. And she said, we need to do more of this and we need to make sure that she understands the role that women play. So I told her, well, pictures are worth a thousand words. I've got a thousand words for each of these pictures. And I would love, love, love to collaborate on a project where I can tell their stories. And she said, oh, absolutely not. what? And she said, oh, I could never do that. Oh my God, that's, that, that's just not something. I mean, that's too big. That's, that's not something I could do. So I got on a plane and flew to Seattle, got in a car and drove to Kent outside of Seattle and took her family to lunch and convinced her to do the book. And I said, we can do lots of these books. We can do a whole encyclopedia of these books. She said, no, we're not doing any more books. And I said, well, we can't leave out little boys. So if we're only gonna do one book, can we just include some boys to men? And she said, oh, well, of course we can do that. But we have to find a boy. I said, I've got a boy. So I flew to Dallas. I got my grandson. We went to Seattle. And for a whole weekend, she was able to do over four days with him what she had done with Lola over a month. And the only thing we had to do was bribe him with cupcakes and Fortnite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) great. There are so many African-American icons who could have been featured in that they lived. How did you choose the individuals that you would profile in this book?
3: Well, I can tell you that I started this project after we finished all of the photographs and I spent a year researching different people because the most important thing I wanted to teach young people and people from nine to 93, that every important person was once a child. So I went diving into their childhoods to try and find some of those things. I can give you an example. And every essay begins the same way. So if you read the book, you'll pretty soon get the cadence. Jackie Roosevelt Robinson would grow up to be the first African-American to play Major League Baseball in the modern era. But when Jackie was a 16-year-old high school student, he was a member of a gang. Now, as a journalist, former journalist, always journalist. We think we know everything. I did not know that about Jackie Robinson. So, of course, I wanted to tell people the story from him leaving that gang, thanks to his brother, who said, get into sports, it'll do you, you know, better. And then what that led him to for his whole life, the history that he made, he changed baseball, he changed people's view of African-Americans in sports, but that's not how he started. And had he not pivoted, you know, then we wouldn't have had that history. So if there's some kid somewhere in Milwaukee or Detroit or Chicago, who's thinking that the only thing they can do is be in a gang, they can know that somebody else started like that, changed their minds and looked at where they went wonderful.
2: And you so you've written about the childhood years of these 21 great African Americans. What can you tell us about your own childhood? What? When did you first realize that you were a writer or could be a writer?
3: Well, as I mentioned before, when I was eight years old, I knew that's what I would do. But what I had to do was figure out how to actually get paid so I could eat because I was a child who loved to eat, who understood the economy, who knew that you had to find a job of some sort. And I just wasn't sure what job there was to, I said, I don't have a book. And, you know, if I don't have a book, does that mean I don't get paid and we don't get to eat? But uh, later, as I started to write more and to excel in high school, my high school English teacher, and this, I grew up in Tarboro, North Carolina, little town in Eastern North Carolina, 10,000 people there when I grew up, 10,000 people there now, not the same 10,000, but that's, we're, we're consistent. And uh, we had one high school and my high school English teacher convinced the principal to let her teach a journalism class. We got these great books that said News Writing 101. And I immediately said, that's how I can make a living as a writer. And from that point, when I was 16 years old, I was a journalist. I only applied to one college, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which has the best journalism program in the country. I know Northwestern will debate, but it's true. And, um, and I did that for almost 30 years, 24 of those as a columnist. And it was it was the life I wanted. I had the job I dreamed of. It was all great. What do you hope children
0: will take away from this book as a key message or as an idea?
3: Well, I know that everybody's aware of the debate that's going on now between whether you should teach children African-American history and by calling it critical race theory, which is literally you know the study of what racism has done to America and is not you know, being considered to be taught to children, they, they need to understand that there was a whole different narrative for African-Americans in this country than there's slavery. And then there's not, then there's a civil rights movement, but we're not going to tell you why it happened. And then, you know, Barack Obama, Th- that's not the history. That's not the narrative. So my main goal is to make sure that all children understand that there's a bigger marvelous story of, um, of a people who survived and then thrived and who became some of the best people in our history whose stories were hidden. I don't celebrate hidden figures where somebody now tells somebody's story about when they were great. Katherine Johnson lived so that she could see a movie made about her life, but she didn't get any credit for helping to send a man to the moon while it was happening. I I lament that. So I I really just want every African-American child to know that there's this amazing history which will change the way they feel about themselves. But I want every child of every color, white, black, orange, to know that um, there's this great African-American history and you need to look at African-Americans differently, You know, as people who achieved and accomplished and just made great, amazing strides and changed the way we live like Thurgood Marshall did.
1: Would you like to read something from that they lived for our listeners?
3: I would love to, because this is one of my favorites. Thurgood Marshall would grow up to be an American lawyer who did more than any other person to make life equal for African-Americans. He argued more cases before the U.S. Supreme Court than any lawyer in American history, and he became the first African-American to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. But that stellar journey began when Thurgood was 14 years old and his parents, William Canfield Marshall, a railroad porter, and Norma Arika Williams Marshall, a teacher, made him understand how to use the law to fight for what's right. His father took Thurgood and his brother to sit and watch court proceedings so that they could learn about cases. Then they would discuss what they had seen. Thurgood later said that his father never told him to become a lawyer, but he turned me into one. He did it by teaching me to argue, by challenging my logic on every point, by making me prove every statement I made. That's how he became be Thurgood Marshall. And you never know when something like that happens in a young person's life that changes everything. So again, I want kids to see themselves, not where they are, but where they can be because it's been done. There's another one. And when people get the book, I will tell you, you won't be able to see this, but this is Duke Ellington. And this is my grandson as Duke Ellington. This again is one of my favorites. Edward Kennedy Duke Ellington would grow up to be one of the most celebrated musicians and composers in history. He is considered one of the founding fathers of American jazz, but when Edward was 15 years old, he was serving sodas at the counter at the Poodle Dog Cafe and writing his first composition called Soda Fountain Rag, and he did it before learning to read or write music. Imagine that, One of the greatest composers of all time, one of the greatest band leaders of all time, one of the founding fathers of American jazz started behind a soda fountain as a soda jerk, writing music without knowing how to read or write music. That's what I want people to see. That's what I want kids to see. I I want them to know there's nothing about where you start, nothing about where you uh, live, nothing about who your parents are that determines who you can be and who you can become. You can do whatever you want if you work at it because so many people did. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Yeah. What a
1: wonderful story, yes. yeah, It is such a beautiful book, just visually stunning as well. Every one of the, of the photographs is just incredible.
3: Well, I can tell you, Christy is not a photographer. Well, she is now because I refuse to let her say anything else. She is a beautiful homemaker who devotes her life to her family and started taking these photos with um, an an iPhone. And then she graduated to an SLR and, and got a really great camera. And when we got to her house to do Caleb's photo shoot, we were hanging sheets in the living room. And putting things on the piano and, and turning it into a studio. And she also did all of the makeup and hair, which means she had to find everything that was necessary. And of course, finding Frederick Douglass's hair, (laughs) that was Caleb's favorite because once he got it all on, he wanted to go to the movies for a break in the Frederick Douglass hair. I said, you cannot, (laughs) you can go as Thurgood Marshall, but you cannot go. So I've got this eight-year-old kid, nine-year-old kid who is literally walking around with gray hair and glasses and people are like, what what's going on there? <laughs> I thought Frederick Douglass might be a bit much for that. <laughs> I think that
2: would have been adorable. <laughs> and in 19... 19- In 2020, you published The Burden: African Americans and the Enduring Impact of Slavery. This powerful collection of essays is a plea to America to understand what life post-slavery remains like for many African Americans who are descended from people whose unpaid labor built the United States, um, but have had to spend the last century and a half carrying the dual burden of fighting racial injustice and rising above the lowered expectations and. Into hateful bigotry, that attempt to keep them shackled to that past. So how did this amazing project come about?
3: Well, this was totally reactionary. Uh, there was a columnist he has since retired at a Pittsburgh newspaper who wrote a column saying black people needed to get over slavery, that it was a long time ago that you know, quite frankly, all of the folks who were brought to America were better off. Uh, had they, than they would have been had they stayed in Africa. And that let me know two things. One is uh, he had never been to Africa. And two, he didn't know any Black people. And the idea that he would put that out there for people to talk about and for it to continue to feed this horrible false narrative, not only about one of the richest continents of, of countries in the world, but of what slavery really was. But, you know, we have this rule, it's not an unwritten rule, you know, columnists write what they want, First Amendment, you know. Even if you're wrong, you get to say what you wanna say. So I didn't write a column, but I did write a Facebook post challenging this whole notion that slavery was something that needed to continue to be buried, continue to not be taught in schools, continue to be treated like something that had nothing to do with the way people live now. And so I decided, well, if I'm gonna do something, it can't be just me. So I started calling up people. My first call was to my friend, Leonard Pitts, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist uh, for the Miami Herald who works outside Washington. And I said, I'm doing this book and and I need you to write an essay for it. He was finishing his novel. He said, I will stop what I'm doing and contribute something. My next call was to Nicole Hannah-Jones. And I said, I'm doing this book on this subject and I'd like you to write the forward." And she was finishing her own book, which she still hasn't finished because then she pivoted to the 1619 project later. But before all of that, she wrote some of the most powerful words that have been written uh, about this subject. And I knew that there were going to be amazing things coming after it. So I just want to read a little bit of that. She talked about the 13th Amendment, which everybody thought would change things. Congress, after passing the 13th Amendment, realized that it was not enough to outlaw the institution of slavery. And so it passed civil rights laws in the 1860s to eliminate the badges of slavery as well. 100 years later, in ruling against a white community that prohibited black residents from moving in, the Supreme Court ruled that the 13th Amendment had clothed Congress with power to pass all laws necessary and proper for abolishing all badges and incidents of slavery in the United States. And that it empowered Congress to eradicate the last vestiges and incidents of a society half slave and half free. The badge of slavery wasn't our skin, it was the conditions created to demean, degrade, exploit and control those with our skin. We have never rid ourselves of those badges, not in the 1860s, not in the 1960s, not now. We remain a nation of full citizens and part citizens and our original sin remains the thing for which we, the people the sin was visited upon, can never be forgiven. Our very presence here reminds this great nation of all that we are not. The essays in this collection come
2: from
0: a surprising range of contributors, uh, journalists such as Leonard Pitts that you mentioned and Betty DeRamis, and scholars like Julianne Marlvaud, but also actors like Tim Reed and Aisha Hines. How did you select the contributors of The Burden and what was it like to work with all of these
3: writers? Well, I can tell you it is like herding sheep because I called everyone that I knew and I called some people that I didn't know. I sent a note to Tahanasi Coates, um, you know, writer of Between the World and Me, because I thought here's somebody who should be in it. But he was just getting ready to move to Paris after doing that book. And I said, well, he's done his part. Uh, I had just been on a trip to Cuba uh, with a group of folks who included Tim Reed, um, longtime amazing actor and producer and and director, uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, his longtime friend Howard Hesman died last week. And um, I I asked him to to write something and he said, well, you know, I I had cancer and I never knew that. He said, I think I want to write something about how slavery is like cancer. And I said, you can write whatever you want and with Aisha Hines I just met her because I had uh, hosted a talk back on a on a show that she was in and I said I'm doing this project I'd love to tell you about it and she said something to me that I know I had thought about but hadn't thought about enough she said I don't know if I can write this you know I I that's not what I do but it's always stunning to me that people were surprised that Barack Obama could be president here you have someone who is a brilliant constitutional lawyer who was the you know uh, head of the law review at Harvard who became a U.S. Senator, like the perfect candidate, but there was just this sense that it was something unusual. And I said, write that. So um, I had very few people to say no and it's because they were either working on their own books or on deadline. And the sad sort of heartbreaking, but very important thing to note was that I waited until all the essays were in before I would write mine. And when they all came in, not one was about the same subject. I didn't have to call anyone back and say, oh, you know, somebody else wrote about that. So I need you to write something different because I didn't tell them what to write. Anybody who asked like Aisha and, and, and uh, Tim, you know, I said, well, you've got something. But for everybody else, I had no idea what was coming. I just let them do it. And I did not have to have anybody redo anything.
1: Amazing. So what do you hope people will take away from this book? Like what is your hope for the lasting impact of this collection of essays?
3: Well, I am working on the sequel called Laying the Burden Down. And I'm going to read just a tiny bit of my essay, which I had to write after all the rest of them came in. And this is what I hope for us. And this is what I want to try and encourage and teach people to do. The scene is seared into my memory. Red, just paroled from Shawshank Prison, works as a bag boy at a local grocer. He quickly packs a sack for a customer, then raises his hand to catch the manager's attention. Restroom break, boss? His white supervisor calls him over. You don't need to ask me every time you need to take a piss. Just go, understand? Red nods quickly, acquiescently. He goes to the men's room. As he stands over the urinal, his words and voiceover hang in the air. 40 years I've been asking permission to piss. I can't squeeze a drop without say-so. That is what prison did to a grown man in a fictional film, The Shawshank Redemption. That is what being enslaved did to a people. There are thousands of examples in written history that detail the physical brutality of slavery. But what America must pay more attention to is the emotional brutality that boils down to a single post-slavery word, that has been as much a part of our living history as our flag, permission. That's
2: amazing, thank you for that perspective. And who are the writers who have given you perspective, who have
3: inspired you the most? Oh my goodness, Um, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Leonard Pitts, his column, quite frankly, and he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, has been one of the staples of American journalism for over 20 years. And he has worked tirelessly, once again, a a fellow warrior to make sure that people never forget that we should not hide this conversation, but we should have it. And I think that uh, as long as you have people who continue to do that, uh, we'll do that. But we have to make sure people are continuing to do it. That means we've got to teach young people the history that they have to make sure people don't bury or throw away or not listen to.
0: And is there anything else that you can share with us about your project that you're working on now?
3: Well, I can tell you that if you promise somebody a book that tells you how to lay something down, you better have some suggestions on how to lay it down. So I'm trying to make sure that I'm encouraging things that are doable, encouraging things that are individual. You know, I'm not trying to create some mass uh, movement to do something. I want people to figure out how in their lives they can do something different to make them happier, to make them freer, and to just make sure they understand that it's okay to have courage. It's okay to stand up and say, this is how I wanna live. This is what the uh, Declaration of Independence, which was you know, quite frankly a lie <laughs> promised. All men have never been created equal in the eyes of American government. And we've, we've changed a lot of things about the constitution. We have all these amendments, but we've never amended that fake statement. Um, We want everyone in America to feel like they have the right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That's the promise. And that's what Dr. King fought for. That's what uh, Malcolm X in his own way fought for. And that's what we all should find little ways to fight for in our space. Excellent.
1: Thank you for joining us, Rochelle Riley.
3: Thank you so much. It was my honor to be here. If people want to get either book, they're both sold where books are sold, or you can get information at RochelleRiley.com, which is my website that tells you everything you want to know about me.
1: Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, SinCity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.